Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Hey, this is Anna. On Death, Sex, and Money, we've had an ongoing conversation about student debt and how for many of you, it's affecting major life decisions and what feels possible in your life. We're thinking about that again in the wake of the U.S. Supreme Court decision a few weeks ago that found that President Biden did not have the authority for his planned debt forgiveness program. We are watching as policymakers debate what happens next, and we'll be listening to you as you try to sort out what you do next, whether you're someone with debt or someone with kids who are or will one day be college age. Since we first dug into student debt with you in a big series in 2017, The thing we've heard over and over again is there's this conundrum at the center of it. Many of you took on student debt because you thought you were doing what you were supposed to do, getting educated and setting yourself up for more opportunities. But then that debt became too much to handle for some of you because of the ways higher ed costs have skyrocketed or because your earnings didn't stretch far enough or because the psychological toll of starting your adult life so far in the hole, it just felt like you'd made some critical error somewhere. And that's why we wanted to share this story of student debt with you from This is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace, about how one young woman in Canada ended up working in the oil sands to pay down her college loans. A warning, It does include details about sexual harassment and sexual assault in the workplace. So if that's not something you're up for listening to right now, you might want to skip this one. And if you don't already know about This is Uncomfortable, definitely add the show to your listening routine. It's like a close cousin of Death, Sex, and Money. They say the show is stories about life and how money messes with it, and we are all fans of it here. And I like this particular episode from their latest season a lot. Here's This Is Uncomfortable host, Rima Kreis. In October of 2005, Kate Beaton woke up at 5 in the morning, shuffled out of the one bedroom she was sharing with two roommates, and made her way to the bus stop. It was the first day of her new job. She was wearing an old jacket, which barely held up against the cold. Not normal cold. Really, really cold. Like when you breathe in and it feels like there's knives going in your throat, that's the kind of cold. Or like if you breathe in through your nose and your nostrils just stick together. In northern Canada, where she just relocated, temperatures could drop to minus 58 degrees Fahrenheit, which I can't even imagine. So cold that legally, 
when it hits certain temperatures, some of the workers are not allowed to work outside more than 15 minutes at a time. That Legally, they have to come back inside and warm up. This was not your everyday 9 to 5. Kate was headed to work for a company called Syncrude in the oil sands of Alberta. Imagine a huge expanse of black, sticky, tar-like substance that can be processed into oil. It's an isolated, desolate place. Kate would be spending all day and sometimes all night in a frigid warehouse, handing tools to the workers out in the fields. She was just 21. She'd be one of very few women. By some estimates, one woman for every 50 men. This is not what Kate or her parents had envisioned for her. Going to college was supposed to spare her from this. But Kate had taken out $40,000 in student loans. And if there was one thing she felt sure of, it was that her adult life could not begin with debt. It felt like a foot on my neck. Just a, a pressure that wasn't going to lift unless I was able to remove it. Kate stood at the bus stop, stamping her feet against the cold with a few other oil workers beside her. The sun rises late in the winter when you're that far north, so it was still dark out when they saw the headlights approaching. She boarded and settled in for her first 40-minute commute. And uh, the first time that you see Syncrude coming out of the darkness, it is just lights and smoke and flames. Mm. And you've never seen anything like it. It felt like she had entered this bleak alien world. Smokestacks, huge machinery. Everywhere she looked, she saw towering structures and flashing lights. Kate stared out the window, awestruck. It's an unbelievable sight. And you think, we're going to go in there. And, and this is where I work. I, I just went, and I hope for the best. You know, sometimes you can be so naive. I'm Rima Khreis, and you're listening to This is Uncomfortable, a show from Marketplace about life and how money messes with it. We learned about Kate through her graphic memoir, Ducks, which came out late last year. On the surface, it's a story about the weight of student loans and Kate's determination to do anything to pay them off in one fell swoop. But really, it's much bigger than that. This week, we follow Kate into a workplace that's a world of its own, where boredom and loneliness are ever-present, a place where ordinary social expectations and rules don't always apply. It's a story about class, home, and the forces that determine our fate. And just as a warning, this episode contains descriptions of sexual assault. Kate grew up in Cape Breton, an island off the eastern coast of Canada. It was a beautiful place to be as a kid. Old forests, rocky cliffs, dramatic ocean views. The village where she grew up feels like what I imagine when someone says they grew up in a small place. One volunteer fire department, a post office, a few stores, and a population of 1,500. Kate's dad was the meat manager at the local grocery store, and her mom worked at the credit union. They had four daughters to raise, and money anxiety was in the atmosphere of everything at home. The fact that this broke and it's fixed with tape, or the state of the vehicles, which are, are always kind of shabby. And it wasn't just Kate's family. Money was tight throughout the entire community. The main industries in town were fishing, mining, and steel, industries that were dying and leaving people financially ravaged. As a kid, Kate couldn't avoid hearing the nightly news reports, like the shutdown of the cod industry in 1992, which left 30,000 people out of work overnight. 
When the Minister of Fisheries ran up against the workers, there was this hugely publicized showdown. I didn't take the fish from the goddamn water. That same year, an explosion went off at a coal mine two hours away from Kate's village. At the time of the explosion, there were 26 employees underground working on the night shift. Kate was nine years old. One of the workers was from her village. She went to the service with her family. I remember the adults saying, no one's going to go to jail for this. And no one ever did. And so what did you take away from that? I knew my value as a worker. You know the power of companies when you hear stories like that. Because those jobs, the people who took them knew that that was a dangerous place. But they were so grateful for a job. And that's where I'm from. As a teenager, Kate felt like the world was caving in. Like there was just desperation all around her. And the only thing to do in Cape Breton was to leave. You would even go to the guidance counselor's office and they would be like, leave. Mm. And you'll hear, oh, this person is gone, this person is gone, this person is going. And you just felt like you were walking into this preordained thing. And really, there was nothing new about people leaving Cape Breton. The exodus has always been part of the island's identity. But I was surprised to learn just how deep that goes. You know, there's songs like uh, Heading for Halifax by Janelle and Cameron and... The chorus is, I'm heading for Halifax to see what's to spare in the way of some work. In the way of some work, and if there's nothing there, it's Toronto. Toronto, out west, to God only knows where. But there's bound to be friends from back home. to be friends from back home. Everything in Kate's life was pointing outward, away from home. But everything beyond Cape Breton was like this big mystery. I didn't know anything outside the town. You know how, like, when you're playing a video game and the map isn't filled in until you get there? Uh That's kind of what it's like. It's just like this big mist. Her parents had never gone to college, but they wanted their kids to have better opportunities than they did. For years, Kate thought she'd apply to animation school. She was that kid who drew all the time, sketching cartoons in her notebooks. She'd watch every animated movie she could find, pausing at the credits and writing down all the names, trying to figure out what the jobs were, what she had to do to become one of those people. But then because I'm from this this tiny place in the middle of nowhere, I also thought that there's no way that I would be able to make it to animation school. So I didn't apply. She talked herself out of it. She figured maybe she'd take some art electives. But that kind of work, just a fantasy. That is one thing that coming from like a low-income place and a, and a rural place will do to you. It will, it will take your confidence away. Yeah. It's kind of like, I, it's all I wanted my whole life. And, and then at the last minute, I was just like, I can't. What if I'm not good enough? Kate ended up majoring in history and anthropology at a small college three hours away. And like every other kid in town, she took out loans to pay for it. The summer after graduation, she was living back at home, working an odd job. She had a six-month grace period of interest relief on the loans. And it was around then that her parents started asking questions. They're like, where's the job? You know, you've got the degree. Where's the, where's the job now? With a degree, Kate could get one of the good jobs in town. She could be a nurse, a teacher, a job with benefits and a pension. But there was this nagging voice in her head. What if she'd sold herself short on being an artist? 
She still loved to draw and make comics. Maybe she could look into graduate programs to really give her dream a shot. She broke it to her parents that she didn't really want one of those good jobs in town. They're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) What were you doing? Why did you do the degree? Uh, Yeah, that's a bitter pill. Kate wanted to give herself a chance at her dream of being an artist. But to do that, she wanted, needed financial freedom. She needed to rid herself of debt fast. I needed to pay this off first for my own sanity because I just could not live with this. If you've ever been poor, and and like, and I don't mean like broke, but like poor, it is suffocating. The most she had ever been paid was 11 bucks an hour for a summer job. Now she owed $40,000. To me, like, that was an astronomical sum. I could not, like, I could not imagine paying that much off. Let alone at $11 per hour. At that rate, with interest, Kate would be paying off the loan for decades to come. She needed to make a lot of money. And it just became very clear that I was going to go to the oil sands. Kate had seen recruiters pass through town before. Recruiters from Syncrude, the oil company in Alberta. The whispers were everywhere. You can make lots of money working in the oil sands. They'll hire you without any experience. Everybody was going. And I mean, it was like a conveyor belt of bodies going to the oil sands to work. For Kate, it was a simple decision. She wanted the freedom to make choices in her life. I did not know how much money I would make. I didn't know what kind of job I would get. I didn't know anything. All she knew was that the oil sands promised money. At the airport, Kate's mom wept. When would she see her daughter again? They hugged goodbye, and Kate boarded a plane that would take her 3,000 miles west to the frigid cold of her new home. She found a one-bedroom in town that she would split with two roommates. One slept in the room, one slept on the couch, and Kate threw down a mattress in the closet. She didn't have much, but soon she landed a job at the oil company. She had answered a newspaper ad for something called a tool crib attendant. I went to an interview, and I... I lied to them and said that my father owned a hardware store, so I knew a lot about tools. (laughs) Did you know anything about tools? No, I didn't know anything. And my dad is terrible with tools. Like, he's the one who's going around the house fixing things with tape. It would be Kate's job to manage inventory. Basically, she'd be checking out tools to workers who were running the equipment on site. Her first day of work was a blur of orientation and safety videos. She was trying to get her bearings in this gigantic place, trying to not look too much like a newbie. I wore like a blouse my first day because I was like, my first day of work, I better show up. (laughs) And literally everyone is wearing hoodies and like jeans. Her new office was a big freezing warehouse filled with all sorts of tools and equipment she'd never seen before. Safety gear, visors, drills, impact wrenches, impact wrench adapters— Every day, she was out of bed at 5, at the bus stop at 6, ready to work by 7 for her 12-hour shift. Six days on, six days off, split between day and night shifts. There was a lot of repetition. People coming to the counter, receiving pallets, making orders, taking orders, talking to people, seeing a lot of faces behind 
hard hats, and glasses. The tool crib became like a second home. At the beginning, the guys would help her out when she didn't know what something was. And they all saw my job as cushy because it was inside, even if the inside was freezing. The days blurred into each other. It seemed like no time had passed by the end of her second week when her boss pulled her aside and handed her an envelope. It was her first paycheck. She opened it right there. I remember it being some, like $1,200. Mm. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> I am rich. It was more money than she'd ever held in her hands. More money than either of her parents had ever made in a single paycheck. She didn't yet realize that she was getting paid terrible money by oil standards, about 18 bucks an hour, probably less than anyone there. But at that moment, it felt like a pot of gold. She paid her rent and made a payment towards her student loans. The oil sands had promised money and delivered. But it promised other things, too. And Kate was just beginning to understand what it'd mean to live in a place like this. At first, it seemed mild enough. She'd get called pet names. Dollface, Puddin', Ducky. Guys would comment on her big brown eyes. She got hit on a lot. She overheard guys talking about other women, the ones they liked, the ones they didn't like. But then one night, something happened when Kate was alone in the tool crib. A man kept coming in over and over to see her. He wanted to know if I had sex with anybody during my night shift, like for a little fun. Oh, wow. And, uh, and I said no. Um, and he got what he needed, but he kept coming back because it was cold. He said he was cold. Mm. And the warehouse was warm. And um, he was like, I'd like to fuck you on that pile of rags over there. There were like cleaning rags that we, bundles of cleaning rags that we handed out to clean bitumen off the tools. Kate was scared. She was completely alone. She didn't know what to say. After he left that time, I hid for the rest of the night. You know, if somebody if somebody came in, I, um, I, I kind of hid to the side unless I heard their voice, and then I knew it wasn't him, and then I would come and help them. That night, she was supposed to wax the floor with this big buffing machine. There was an inspector coming in the next day to look through the warehouse. It was a gigantic floor. She was so spooked that she just didn't do it. And the next morning, my boss was livid. He was insane. I just remember his face being very bloated and and angry. She tried to think fast, said she'd been feeling sick the night before. Of course, to him, that just sounded like some bullshit, which it was. And I hated myself. I hated him. And I hated the man the night before, but I also felt so powerless because there was no one to call. Kate nearly got fired that day. It had only been two months since she arrived. But the harassment was like the smog in the air. There wasn't a day without it. It became part of the background noise. And there are gradients of it. There is anything from people being in your face, saying things to you, touching you, getting too close. It took all forms. One time, guys lined up all the way around the tool crib to catch a glimpse of her, to rate her body out of 10, compare her to the other women on site. 
Other times, it was dumb stuff, like the day she was sent to town to go get a cake for someone's retirement party. Then I was like, wait a minute, what kind of cake does he like? And my coworker was like, any kind you jump out of, dollface. Mm. And, <laughs> and even now, that's so funny because it's so stupid. <laughs> it was strange. Every day, life could be offensive, funny, distasteful, scary, all at the same time. Dealing with the harassment began to feel like something she just had to endure, the price of admission to the life she really wanted. As the months passed, Kate just tried to keep her eye on the prize, still making her commute from the town to the site day in and day out. She was making more money than she'd ever made. Still, she was realizing that after rent and utilities, $18 an hour was hardly enough to make a dent in her loans. She needed to ramp things up to get more money faster. And it was right around then that Kate was offered a job at the camps. If the oil sands were like military basic training, the camps were like the special forces. You slept there with everybody else, so you never escaped it. Mm. And when I first arrived at the camps, I didn't know what it was going to be at all. The camps were a trade-off. You didn't have to pay rent, didn't have to worry about groceries, no bills whatsoever. You could save nearly every dollar you made. Even making, like, even making $18 an hour in the camp, it's different when you you pocket literally all of the money mm-hmm. without anywhere to spend it. There's nowhere to spend it when you're on site. The catch is that you live in a long trailer with dozens of other guys 24-7, out in the middle of nowhere. People were cut off and isolated from anywhere. Yeah. It was a marked difference. And you saw what what living conditions and working conditions did to people. The first night that I was there, one of the first nights I slept without locking my door. Mm-hmm. And then I, I woke up in the morning and my door was wide open. Oh, God. Somebody had opened it and just left it open while I was sleeping. Do you remember what you felt that morning? Terror. Kate started locking her door after that, but the lock was mostly a comfort blanket. You would wake up in the night and and the doorknob would be jiggling with somebody trying it. And uh, you'd think sometimes maybe they're just mistaking where their room is. It's a long corridor with a bunch mm-hmm. of doors. And look, they all look exactly the same. Yeah. But then then you'd talk to the other men that you work with, like, oh, it's like my doorknob rattling. And they're like, that doesn't happen to me. It was as though she'd entered another world with its own rules and logic. In isolation for weeks on end, the guys around her went stir-crazy, jockeying for attention, throwing around big sums of money, almost no women, no family, nothing to do except for work. The way Kate saw it, these guys weren't especially bad. They were just guys in a corrosive situation. They're honestly sometimes so bored that they'll do insane things like this that make no sense and probably had no plan for after the doorknob worked. Mm -hmm. If that even makes sense to you, it makes sense to me. No, it does. It does. I don't even think that those people wanted to come in and do anything. I think they were just trying the door just to try it because they're so fucked up by being in this place that destroys your brain. A lot of her coworkers were from places like the place she was from, 
small, working-class towns. They were sending money to their families back home. They could make an offhand sexist joke one moment and then be really sweet and genuine the next. There was the mechanic who secretly tried to teach her how to knit, the guy who gave her big framed photographs of the northern lights. Then there was the guy at Christmas. That first Christmas, Kate couldn't afford a ticket home. It would have meant spending every dollar she had saved. Her mom sent her a plastic tree in the mail with little ornaments, but it felt too sad to set it up. On Christmas Eve, Kate made her way to her usual post in the tool crib. It was snowing. Everyone was unusually cheerful. And they're like, making that overtime? Like, good for you. Like, good for you, girl, making that overtime money. At some point during the night, this guy came in. Kate had seen him around, but they never really talked. And he gave me a tin that had some cookies in it. And and I was like, well, I don't need these. And, and he was like, oh, yes, take them, take them. My wife made them. He said, I told her there was a young girl there all alone by herself on Christmas Eve. And she said, that just won't do. So she sent these to work with me today, these cookies. Kate was taken aback. She didn't know how to thank him. That was such a nice gesture from this man that I really didn't know and this woman that I had never met. But they knew what it was like to be away from home on Christmas Eve. As the man was walking out, Kate grabbed one of the ornaments her mom had sent her and dashed outside to give it to him. Still, the bad persisted along with the good. And Kate kept reminding herself of her North Star. When I leave here, she thought, at least I'll be free of my student debt. When I leave here, I can start focusing on my art. Meanwhile, Kate started to notice herself changing. It's like she was starting to get used to the harassment, numb to it. Like so many of her coworkers, she'd arrived at the oil sands as a sort of exile, casualties of poor opportunity at home. But once they got there, they became casualties of something else— isolation and grueling work. And sometimes they lost themselves. We also, in so many ways, have not equipped men with the tools to deal with pain. I'm generalizing immensely here, but so many men are raised to just ingest their own pain and never speak it, never complain, just work. And of course, it comes out somewhere. It comes out somewhere awful. And it doesn't excuse anybody's behavior. But you can't just say this place is full of monsters because it is a place that is created by corporations to exploit workers, and it does its job. After the break, Kate's breaking point. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. And this week, we're sharing an episode with you from This is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. Here's host Shreema Kreis. Kate was on track. Every month, she chipped away at the debt. There was a rhythm to the weeks that passed. Eat, work, sleep, repeat. Eat, work, sleep, repeat. It was all going to be worth it once she made that final payment. But late in the spring of 2006, everything changed. 
So the first time it happened, it was on site in the camp. A co-worker, one of the few other women there, had invited Kate to a birthday party where people were drinking. The man who discovered that I couldn't handle any drinks just led me to his room, pretty much. That night, he assaulted her. The next morning, Kate was freaked out, confused. I don't, I don't accept what it is right away. I can't talk about it. I'm sort of shell-shocked. Did anybody know? Had the guy told anyone? For days afterwards, Kate was desperate to take a break from camp. She agreed to go to a party in town with some friends. When she got there, someone handed her a drink. I went to the bathroom, and I don't know how long I was in there, but when I got out, everybody else was gone. And it was just this one one guy standing there. I was crying when he did it. And, because he was like, don't do that. And, because uh, we have to hurry up before, because <laughs> we have to go meet the boys. I think that I was raped twice within a short amount of time because I I suspect that when you are vulnerable, there are people who can really sense it, you know, like blood in the water. And I was not okay. Kate felt like she didn't have anybody to turn to. She worried who would believe her. She had heard how the guys talked about the women who complained. All of this had happened during a moment that was supposed to be celebratory. Kate had helped her sister and a friend get jobs at camp, and they'd be arriving soon. They had expenses to pay off, too. For weeks, Kate had been feeling excited to have loved ones nearby. Now, she just felt on edge, protective. And I realized in a lot of ways after the assaults how much I had become inured to the world around me and what I was bringing these girls into. You know, when they would be like, what's it like? And I was like, oh, it's pretty terrible, but, you know, you get used Mm -hmm. to it. How blithe I was being about how bad it really was because I had gotten too used to it. Yeah. And here they were coming in cold. When they arrived, Kate noticed how the men leered at them. She tried to shield her sister and friend to tell off the guys who would stare or make comments. But after what had happened to her, it's like she was completely hollowed out. But I wasn't going to leave. I wasn't going to leave them there. They mm-hmm. had just arrived, you know. Like, I brought them there. Like, I I need to stay and, and be very protective of them in this world. But I, in the few months that after they first came, I was unraveling a bit. Kate was outside of herself, in a kind of suspended state. Somebody came up to me once, and he was like, are you okay? And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, oh, well, I, I found you walking around outside at 2 a.m. You were talking to yourself. And, and I was like, I don't remember doing that. She was keeping an eye out for the guys who'd raped her. What would happen if she ran into them? One day, when she was out running an errand, Kate saw one of the guys with a group of his friends. It was raining, and they were huddled next to a building. Kate made eye contact with him. It had been about a month since the assault. Somebody looked up at me, and then all of their heads turned towards me. Mm. And then they all laughed and started talking to each other again. It was too much. Kate could barely hold a conversation. Her sister had taken notice. She was like, 
I talk to you and you don't answer. You're like always staring at the wall. You don't acknowledge things. Your head is in a different land. Like something is wrong. Something is wrong with you. And I don't know what it is. The moment of confession finally came one evening, a couple months after it happened. Kate and her sister were sitting side by side on Kate's bed in the camps. At that point, I was still sort of blaming myself. I was like, it's my fault. I let it happen. I didn't even tell her about the two of them. I could only tell her about one. Kate decided it was time to leave the oil sands. She'd been there for a year, earning $18 an hour. The plan was to be there for at least another year to pay off her debt. But now, the toll was too steep. I felt I really, really needed to leave because I was clearly not doing okay. And that's very bittersweet because it's it's almost like you know that you're going to go and waste your time somewhere because you still have to pay it off. How much did you have left? Half. $20,000 sitting between her and her dreams. On the one hand, leaving the camps was this huge relief. But now how was she going to pay off the other half of the debt? Kate moved to Victoria and found a job at a museum. This time, she'd be earning just $13 an hour, 21 hours a week. It was a huge pay cut. At first, returning to normal society, where she wasn't surrounded by crowds of men who lived and breathed their work, it felt jarring. I felt like an alien person. Like, I didn't, uh, I didn't know how to comport myself in a social setting when people were gathering around and laughing with a drink in their hand, and I would just be so awkward. Still, it was exciting. Kate went to the opera, hung out with hippie types, and for the first time in a long time, she started to draw again. She made a website for her comics. Inevitably, though, she started to feel the financial squeeze. Kate had to get odd jobs to supplement the museum job, but that wasn't enough. I couldn't have worked that hard and gone through all of that just to start piling up interest on the loan to get it back up to the point mm-hmm. where it was just as much as it was before. Yeah. That, that seemed to defeat the purpose of the whole thing. Kate was desperate. So one day, she decided to try a Hail Mary. She was sitting in an office in the museum that overlooked a beautiful harbor and historic buildings. The sun was shining down. It felt like a physical symbol of her newfound cultured life. Kate picked up the phone, dialed the 888 number for the loan office, and began to plead for mercy. I was like, well, listen, I just spent a year like with this job where I was putting so much money on and I just needed a break from it because it was really hard. So if, if I can have interest relief for a few months, then I could work on my career a little bit and, um, and then maybe go back to paying my student loans when I get ahead a little bit. Mm-hmm. And they were like, no, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they were not going to do that. The officer told Kate there was no getting out of the interest charge. And they were like, no, but what happened to that other job that you had that was paying so good? I was dressed in, like, like an Argyle sweater vest with a little cravat and, like, a skirt with knee socks and stuff. Like, I, I wanted to look like a little museum lady. <laughs> and then I was just picturing myself in, like, in my work boots and stuff again. And I was just like, oh, God. Like, I, I, uh, I, I, was, I was this whole other person, but I had to go back and be that other person again. Kate went home to her apartment, collapsed onto the couch, and cried. It had been a year since she left the oil sands, a year of distance between herself and the assaults. She didn't want to go back. 
but there was just no other job that could compete with the money she could make up there. I needed to get rid of it, so I went back. If Kate was going back to the oil sands, things would have to be different. She applied for a better position in a different location, away from the men who'd raped her. And instead of the tool crib, she'd have an office job. She wouldn't be in contact with the workers as much, no more night shifts, and her pay would jump significantly, $25 an hour. But the safety came with guilt. This move was like sort of stepping over the heads of people who, in a lot of ways, were more qualified. But I was more qualified on paper, and I knew how to work Excel. And that's the kind of thing that gets you ahead, is knowing how to work Excel. It was like her jump in station had exposed this tension between Kate and her old co-workers. On the one hand, they were cut from the same cloth. They'd end up in the oil sands because that was just where people went for work. But on the other hand, unlike many of her co-workers, Kate had a college degree. And for the first time since graduation, that degree was working its magic. I got to work in the office. I got to get to have the nicer room. I got to sit on my ass all day in, in the office chair, as they like to point out to me all the time. And they were kind of bitter about it, but I don't blame them for that. These guys, they had experience with tools and machinery that Kate couldn't compete with. But just like that, she'd leapfrog them. They had families at home, wives and little kids who depended on them. Kate was young and child-free. Often people would bring it up to me, you know, you could walk away anytime. You don't like it here? You can just walk away. And you knew they couldn't. Because they needed to provide for their families, or they felt like this was the only option? Yes. In some cases, it really was. For months, Kate kept her head down. She'd work and draw, work and draw. She was posting stuff on our comics website, using the office scanner to upload images. She was starting to build an online following, amazed that people seemed to like her work. Then, on June 6, 2008, Kate sat down at her desk to take stock of where she was with the loan payments. She did some calculating, paused, and then stared at her computer screen. I was like, oh, I have enough to pay it all off. I logged in to my Royal Bank account and looked at my balance and just put the money onto it, the same amount that was owing. I put mm-hmm. that exact amount in and, uh, and had, like, almost nothing left in my savings. And I was like, wow, it's done. She didn't know what to do. She was just sitting in her chair in front of the laptop alone. So I was looking at my laptop and looking at that amount, and the figures matched. I, I was like, I, I, it's, I did it. This is what I came here for, and I did it. But uh, when you labor at something for, like, um, for years and years, and then you get it, you're, it is kind of anticlimactic. It was weird. The promise that she'd made to herself, that she'd pursue being an artist as long as she paid off the debt, was suddenly sitting right in front of her. Kate called her mom. I said, Mom, I have no money. And she went, what? (laughs) (laughs) I said, I have no money because I I gave it all to the government. I I paid off all my student loans. I paid them all off. I did it. And she, you know, she's like, oh, Katie. She wanted to know what I was going to do next. And and I I was like, I'm going to stay here for a little bit longer. And I'm going to save up a bit more money. And um, I'm going to try and make it as a cartoonist. And Mom was like, oh, Katie. 
A few months later, Kate left the oil sands for good. She devoted every spare moment to cultivating her webcomic. And to make a long story short, she now makes a living as a full-time cartoonist. Her work has won several awards, and one of her picture books was adapted into a TV show. She still worries all the time about money. She suspects that worry will never fully go away. But she's been debt-free since 2008. Lots of people live with their student loans. But I, I needed to pay it off in order to prove something to myself, in order to, to move on myself, and in order to maybe justify some things that happened to me. Mm. Uh, that, like, I went through this for this end. I needed to, I need to get rid of this thing. Kate gets asked a lot whether it was worth it. But it's a question she feels like she can't really answer. This is the only life she's lived. She doesn't know any other experience. I can only say that without having gone to the oil sands, I, I wouldn't be able to live the life I live now as a cartoonist, living at home. I, I probably would have taken a safe job somewhere that, that would, have, would have supplied both rental pay and student loan pay, and I probably would have found myself stuck somewhere. And so I benefited from my time there immensely. And I suffered for my time there as well. A few years ago, Kate moved back home to Cape Breton. It was a rare reversal of the standard exodus. The population is still declining. But now that she makes a living as a full-time artist, Kate can afford to be back there. She and her husband are raising their two kids just minutes from the street where she grew up. When I asked Kate why she moved back, she said it's because when she's home... She feels like she's a part of the painting instead of something on top of it that doesn't belong in the picture. Kate feels tied not just to the physical place, but to the story of her home. A story that both pulls you in and pushes you out. Where you feel deep love for the smell of the ocean and the quiet of the night, but also fear that opportunity here is not enough. Where the songs remind you that this home is just temporary. Kate has often described leaving Cape Breton as something preordained, but maybe her return was fated too, as inevitable as the island's ocean tides. That's This Is Uncomfortable host Rima Kreis with artist Kate Beaton who is also a New York Times bestselling author. Her books include the graphic novel Ducks, Two Years in the Oil Sands. Thank you to This Is Uncomfortable and Marketplace for sharing this with us. Mila Kerwin was the lead producer and writer of this story for them. And it's from their eighth season, which just wrapped. So you can find all of their latest episodes wherever you get podcasts. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. Our team includes Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Afi Yellow Duke, Zoe Azule, Lindsay Foster Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Christian Reedy. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at Anna Sale Picks, that's P-I-C-S. And the show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Emma Hollister in Brooklyn, New York, for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. Join Emma and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.